Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. James Whedon. But before we get to that interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review by uh, Dr. J. Nash, DC, on iTunes. And Dr. Nash says, energizing, informative, and accessible. I think that it's extremely important to stay current and to continue to learn. But with work and a young family, I find it challenging to carve out time to do this as often as I would like. I just recently started listening to chiropractic science podcasts in the car, and it's a game changer. The topics are current and timely, the guests are leaders in the profession, and there is tremendous value in hearing about the research from the researchers themselves. When I arrive at work, I always have a new tidbit to share with colleagues or an idea about how to apply or integrate the new knowledge and perspectives into what I do. I also appreciate how the guests weave threads that remind us to think critically about what we do and the quality of research that we are doing and using. I just Finished the podcast with Dr. Ian Coulter, it left me re-energized with new questions, an interest in looking more closely at the original papers he discussed, and also at the research on the context of the clinical encounter across different professions. I'm excited about the research that is happening and how it will support the role of chiropractors in the broader healthcare context. Thank you to Dean and the guests for making the information accessible and easy to digest. Well, thank you for that review. Uh, Dr. Nash, I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website, either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram. So please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. James Whedon. Jim Whedon is the Director of Health Services Research at Southern University, Southern California University of Health Sciences and Adjunct Instructor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. He holds a DC degree from Logan College and an MS from Dartmouth College. He has authored 33 peer-reviewed publications. He is advisor to the Project for Integrative Health and the Triple AIM, co-chair of the Research Working Group of the Academic Consortium for Integrative Health, charter member of the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine, and recipient of the Jerome F. McAndrews, D.C. Memorial Research Fund Award from the NCMIC Foundation. Dr. Whedon, it's a privilege to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith, and thank you for inviting me. It's a, it's a real pleasure and honor be here. Well, we're excited uh, to, to hear what you have to say uh, and learn about your experiences in chiropractic and chiropractic research. 
So first, if, if we could, if you could tell the audience how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor. Well, it was, it was kind of a funny thing. It, it just sort of came in, in a flash. It wasn't like I went through, you know, some kind of um, laborious process of figuring out what to do with myself. But uh, I was just sitting on the beach one day wondering what to do with the rest of my life. And I happened to be sitting next to uh, a guy who was a student at, at Life University studying to become a chiropractor. And we were talking, and he said, well, why don't you become a chiropractor? And I thought, well, no, you know, I would have me, a doctor? No, I don't think so. Uh, but within 24 hours, I was, I was driving home, and I knew, I saw my whole life leading up to that, and I knew that I was going to become a chiropractor. And I did. You know, I got, went back to school, got the credits I needed, uh, applied, and, and went through the whole process, and, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, but I but I did have an experience of chiropractic that was was kind of interesting. Um, as a young uh, man, uh, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and came down with a terrible case of low back pain and, and sciatica. It just hit me like a ton of bricks, and I had no no idea what was happening, and nothing seemed to help. And ended up going to Cambridge City Hospital on a, a busy Saturday night in the emergency department, and waited for like three hours, and Finally, a, a resident saw me and examined me, and they, they took an x-ray, and they put the x-ray up on the old, you know, the view box, and I could see it, and he said, well, there's nothing, you can't find anything wrong with you, maybe you've got the flu, and I thought, no, this is not the flu, uh, and that x-ray, I don't know anything about reading x-rays, but that doesn't look right, because there was this, like, kink in my spine, and I thought, that's funny, but he's the doctor, so, and then I, you know, I, like, pleaded with him for some kind of strong, you know, pain medication, morphine, whatever. And he said, well, no, everything's locked up. I can't give you anything. And I, you know, I was just begging. And finally, he gave me something which just made me drowsy and didn't do anything. So that was Saturday night. And I endured Sunday. And Monday morning, I went to see my friend, Bruce Hedendahl, who had a chiropractic practice in Harvard Square. Some of the listeners may know uh, Bruce. He, he died suddenly a couple of years ago, but after he left Massachusetts, he had a very busy practice, again, down in Florida and had a radio show, and he was just a tremendous guy and a, and a wonderful chiropractor. Uh, so he examined me, he took my history, and then took films and put the film up on the view box again, my low back, and there was that kink again, and then he said, well, there's the problem right there and lie down on the table, and he adjusted me, and that was that. I got up pain-free. So that was my first experience of chiropractic. Well, that's a really cool experience, and, and I like the the part about the beach. <laughs> Maybe there's something about the beach as well in this story. That's, that's really interesting. So you went to chiropractic college, uh, and then presumably uh, you got into practice. Can you tell us about your practice a bit? It... It may come as kind of a surprise, although though I, I'm all about you know evidence and research now, that I, I had a, a really s straight chiropractic practice, uh, just, just a manual adjustment of the spine. Uh, and, and some of you may be familiar with network chiropractic. That's actually what I practiced for years. Uh, and just, you know, suffice it to say, it wasn't exactly evidence-based, but uh, patients loved it. 
I really enjoyed, uh, you know, providing that kind of basic chiropractic care and, and had some, you know, it was just a wonderful experience and, and quite a busy practice for a while. Although uh, uh, eventually, you know, questions were just kind of nagging me, you know, um, my left brain kind of kicked in and I, and I wanted to understand more about, you know, what, what was actually happening when I adjusted people. And, and uh, you know, that, that was part of the reason why I ended up eventually uh, getting into research. Hmm. So are you still in practice today? No, I actually haven't practiced for probably about, um, I guess, about four years. I, I practiced first in Massachusetts and later in New Hampshire. Uh, and now I've uh, moved to California and I'm in, in, I'm in research full time. Okay, so how long were you in practice? Well, I guess uh, over a period of 25 years, uh, most of that time I was in, in practice, uh, either full-time or then later uh, part-time in New Hampshire. Uh, after I moved up to New Hampshire, I had a, a, a home office, and a smaller practice than what I had in Massachusetts, uh, and I also uh, went to work for uh, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, which is the teaching hospital for Dartmouth Medical School. Oh, that's really neat. So what is a typical day like for you these days? Oh, well, you know, I'm a director of health services research here at, at SCU, uh, Southern California University of Health Sciences, uh, where we train chiropractors and also other types of integrative uh, healthcare uh, practitioners. And, and uh, acupuncturists, massage therapists, Ayurveda practitioners, yoga therapists, physician assistants. It's really quite, um, uh, quite a, a variety of, of disciplines uh, here. And, uh, but as the director of health services research, I, I'm uh, really doing a lot of administration. So a typical day, they may be... Uh, working on a research proposal, working on a, a data user agreement uh, for use of a, of a, of a you know, research data set, an IRB application, maybe reviewing a manuscript or doing peer review. Uh, it's pretty varied and, and kind, of, kind of fun that way. There's always probably several things, I, several different projects I'm working on on any given day. Oh, fantastic. Well, I want to dive into your research because it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, you've been published in a variety of excellent journals, including Spine, Spine Journal, JMPT, Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, Journal of uh, Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine, and, and so many others. But I'd like to talk with you about some of your most recent research today, uh, and then talk about maybe some ideas uh, for how you might be able to think about incorporating evidence into practice, given uh, the wealth of your practice uh, experience. So uh, let's get started with one paper, and, and I hope this will be a good uh, introduction to, to your research. And this is a paper called Relevance of Quality Measurement to Integrative Health Care in the United States from Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine in 2016. Uh, it seems like a common theme of your research is to uh, improve access to health services that people need and want and to improve quality through systematic care of acute problems and conservative upstream care 
of chronic problems. And I hope this paper can get us into that mindset. Can, can you tell us a bit about this paper? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this paper came as a result of a, a collaborative effort uh, from uh, the Academic Consortium uh, for uh, Integrative Healthcare, uh, which is a, a consortium of, of uh, schools of integrative healthcare. Uh, many of the chiropractic colleges, if not most, are, are involved, uh, as well as schools of acupuncture, massage therapy, direct entry midwives, uh, naturopathic uh, medicine schools. Uh, and, and so we uh, meet periodically and, and um, uh, in, engage in various pro projects. I'm as a co-chair of the uh, research working group for the collaborative. Uh, we sometimes uh, 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 get involved in collaborative projects. Uh, research projects or publication projects, and, that, and that's what this was. It was more of a, a kind of a, a review and opinion piece as, as opposed to research, actually. But uh, it came about because uh, we, we wanted to uh, kind of explore the topic of quality measurement and quality improvement in integrative health care because uh, the quality measures and, and continual improvement of, of clinical health care is, is really an integral feature of medical practice in the United States, conventional medical practice. But it's, it's not common uh, among integrative health care providers uh, to be engaged in, in quality improvement, not, certainly not with the level of intensity uh, that it, uh, you see in medical practices and in hospitals. So we just wanted to kind of initiate a dialogue about quality uh, measurement for integrative healthcare, and you know, and kind of you know introduce the subject because not much really had been published about it in the in the uh, literature on integrative healthcare, and kind of you know just talk about what it is and um, you know examples uh, of how uh, quality measurement can be applied in integrative health, and you know talk about whether you know this is something that integrative healthcare practitioners practitioner should be doing. Uh, or not. Okay. So it's really kind of an exploratory uh, paper. In that gotcha. Way. Gotcha. When I was reading through it, um, you had some description in there about uh, discriminatory policies that may prevent participation of integrative healthcare practitioners in quality improvement. How uh, what, Can you give us some examples of what, what that might look like and, and how we can try to tackle those issues? Yeah, you know, I think probably the most uh, salient example of that is 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 a, an issue that pretty much every chiropractor is aware of, and that's that's uh, Medicare and the the restrictive uh, policies of Medicare with regard to re reimbursement for chiropractic services, uh, i.e., they only reimburse for spinal manipulation and don't, and Medicare does not reimburse for examination, for uh, evaluation and, and management uh, services. And, and yet, um, Medicare uh, does expect chiropractors to, uh, you know, practice, you know, high-quality high health care. Uh, and uh, so there, there's kind of a discrepancy there, and it, it does appear to be discriminatory. And um, so... Uh, I think 
that you know the 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 solution to that uh, seems I think obvious to to most chiropractors that it, it, we would like to see I think uh, at a minimum Medicare uh, reimbursing for evaluation and, and management services so uh, which not only would be a greater benefit to patients significant benefit to patients. Uh, but also it would allow chiropractors to, you know, participate uh, in a little more meaningful way in, in quality improvement. Perfect. Uh, what do you think are some ways that an individual chiropractor can help out in this pathway to try to get us, uh, you know, a, a different kind of legislation for uh, through Medicare? Um. Well, we made some recommendations for, for practice and policy. Uh, we, we recommended that integrative health clinicians, educators, and researchers should engage in a dialogue, for starters, regar regarding the implementation of quality metrics appropriate for integrative health care. Um, we recommended that conventional healthcare organizations should take steps to reduce barriers to participation in quality measurement by integrative practitioners. And finally, we recommended that integrative healthcare organizations should take steps to encourage clinicians and administrators to engage in quality measurement. Now, I would like to sort of introduce a caveat there, though, and that is that, you know, the possibility has been raised that we may be killing quality by measuring it. Right, so if clinicians are spending all their time kind of checking off boxes and documenting the quality of their care, and that means less time spent with a patient, um, you know, it kind of calls into the question of this whole process of quality measurement. Uh, if it becomes so burdensome as to adversely affect, you know, the doctor-patient relationship and the, and actually the quality of of the care. So I think we need to think about that and think about how this whole issue applies to integrative healthcare. Uh, and, and just uh, you know, I wouldn't being out of practice now. I wouldn't presume to you know make explicit suggestions about what uh, chiropractors do or, or not do in practice. Um, but I think it's something we need to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still in practice part time though. Uh, but I can attest to the the burden of the documentation, and like you said, uh, we're uh, it seems being discriminated against, uh, and you know we don't get paid for exams, and yet we're held to the same accountability in terms of our note taking and whatnot. So, I, yeah, it would be great to see some of these things change, and I, I really appreciate. Uh, the ways, uh, the suggestions that you've given for the individual chiropractor to to try to get into this. Um, another uh, paper, well, another series of papers uh, we're going to be talking about, but the next paper uh, is the association between use of chiropractic care and costs of care among older Medicare patients with chronic low back pain and multiple comorbidities. And uh, I'll just say that anytime I see an article come out, and it's by you. I just get excited because I know it's going to be high quality and uh, it's just going to be exciting. So <laughs> well, thank you. yeah, can, can you, uh, can you guide us through this paper and, and give us your take on, on what the significance is? Oh yeah, sure. 
Well, first of all, I think I, sh I should point out that this, I was not the lead author or the lead investigator on this paper. The, the lead author and investigator was, was Bill Weeks, who's a, a medical uh, physician at Dartmouth, and he also has an association now with, with uh, Palmer College and has done some uh, research work in, in collaboration with Christine Gertz. Uh, as, as was this this project, it was a, you know kind of a multidisciplinary uh, project. It, it was uh, conducted at, at Dartmouth, where we analyzed uh, Medicare data uh, to you know explore the, these associations between chiropractic care and, and uh, cost of care. Uh, and uh, so, uh, like a number of studies I've done, it was you know a, a, a kind of retrospective observational. A study using these big, really enormous uh, Medicare databases that come from, you know, uh, Medicare claims. So we had um, studied over 72,000 uh, older uh, patients with chronic low back pain. And these were also sicker patients, so they had multiple comorbidities. Uh, and um, we're really primarily interested in, in looking at costs. And, and what we found that among these patients who used uh, only uh, spinal manipulation uh, during their chronic, uh, for, for their episodes of chronic low back pain, they had lower overall costs of care, they had shorter episodes, and they had uh, lower cost of care per, per episode day. So, um, yeah, we, we, we felt that these... Uh, Findings uh, were significant in light of the the um, particularly in light of Medicare's concern uh, concerns that you know kind of chronic concerns over the years about the costs of chiropractic care, uh, the costs simply for the you know the interventions the chiropractic interventions, but um, you know uh, this study pointed out that there there may be cost offsets. So we don't want to look at just the cost of the interventions, but what what are the overall costs of care? And we found that they were lower for for patients who actually used chiropractic. Okay, terrific. Uh, in the paper, you used something called propensity scores, and I wasn't too familiar with that. Uh, could you could you tell us what what those are exactly? Yeah, it's kind of kind of an obscure. Point, isn't it? Uh, propensity scores are, are sort of a, a statistical device uh, that are, are meant to reduce bias in, in, uh, in research. And, and so there are various kinds of bias, but there's a, there's a kind of bias called selection bias. And, and that happens when, when the two groups, you know, you're, you're, the, the two groups that you're studying, your, your primary group and your comparison group, are not the same. Uh, and this is likely to happen if you're comparing uh, people who use chiropractic versus people who don't use chiropractic care. Uh, and the, the idea being that these, these pa chiropractic patients may be different. They may be different with regard to their beliefs and behaviors. Uh, so to use kind of a, an example from a, a, a more recent study we did, that uh, I think would be really easy to understand. It it seems quite likely, you know, if you're studying uh, the use of, of uh, opioid medications, 
right, among chiropractic users and non-users, uh, that maybe the patients who are using chiropractic really don't believe in medication, and that's why they're using chiropractic, right? So if you find a difference among the groups, it, it's possible that it's not the treatment, chiropractic, but the patient, the patient who wasn't going to be using medications anyway because they don't believe in them. So that's called selection bias. And the way a propensity scoring works is you try to equalize your groups uh, by measuring the propensity to use chiropractic right, uh, among your population and assign a score, a score that kind of quantifies that propensity to use chiropractic. And then that it gets entered into your analysis, into your uh, regression model as a factor. And by adjusting for that propensity score, uh, you equalize your groups. And it uh, sort of approaches having a, a randomized trial where the groups are equal because they've been randomized. But we can't do that in this kind of um, claims study. We can't randomize because we're looking back at something that already happened a few years before. So there's no randomization. So in short, you know, I hope that 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 uh, clears it up. It, it's basically it's it's kind of a statistical device to make your groups equal. Great. Yeah, that, I think that was a an excellent uh, explanation. I appreciate that. To to me, the results suggest uh, what we talked about previously regarding uh, upstream care uh, of conservative uh, care in particular for these chronic problems. How significant do you see these results and, and how do you think a program like Medicare or maybe more broadly the healthcare system in general would fare if we started to implement chiropractors earlier into care? Well, I think the evidence is really clear, you know, and it's not just from this study, but, but for multiple studies over the last 10 years or so, these studies keep coming up and saying the same thing, that if you use chiropractic care first, that your cost outcomes are low and your clinical outcomes are better. There's less escalation of care. Over and over, this is, this is, this is coming up. And, you know, and that's, you know, it's no accident that the guidelines, the clinical um, care guidelines coming out of the American College of Physicians, et cetera, you know, put um, spinal manipulation as, as you know, it's cited as, as first-line therapy. In fact, all, pretty much all the first-line therapies for low back pain in these, you know, clinical guidelines are, are now non-pharmacologic therapies. So it it shouldn't be any 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 surprise, and uh, so the uh, the problem, I guess, is is that you can have clinical guidelines and you can have evidence and expert recommendations, but it doesn't always filter down into practice. And I think one of the principal reasons for that actually is again comes back to access and and. You know, lack of insurance reimbursement sometimes, you know, the, the very, rather limited reimbursement under Medicare, uh, again, is a, is a case in point. Uh, so many where, where you have many um, kind of conventional medical uh, doctors who recognize those, gu those guidelines may recognize the value of, of chiropractic or acupuncture uh, or massage therapy as, you know, maybe a 
a, a safer and more preferable alternative to, say, uh, uh, medication, particularly opioid medication. But um, the patients may not have the, the access to coverage that, that they need. And so uh, even those who would like to refer, their hands are, you know, kind of tied in a little bit because the, the patient's option, the practical options uh, for patient access are not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in looking at the literature that you've done and maybe what you've read, uh, what what type of services do you think that chiropractors perform should be covered? And I know this is just a hypothetical question, but should we talked about exams and do you think uh, if we covered exams for chiropractors and maybe some other therapies in addition to the chiropractic adjustment, would that, do you think that would still be uh, financially showing some, some benefit? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yes to exams. It seems um, obvious that Medicare really should be covering evaluation and management services. It's the right thing to do. Uh, as far as other services, um, under, under Medicare, it, it makes, personally, it makes sense to me uh, that chiropractors should be able to practice up to their, their full le- legal scope of, of practice and provide whatever services they're you know, legally authorized to provide. Uh, and you know, under that scenario, if if a chiropractor didn't want to provide a certain service, um, they you know they that could be their their choice. But for those who do want to kind of practice full scope, that would also be allowed. Uh, you know, so I mean, and the the scope of practice varies by state. So uh, you know, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't want to get in, you know, again, not, I'm not practicing anymore and wouldn't want to make specific recommendations, but that kind of makes sense to me that just to, for Medicare to uh, allow the full, full scope of practice. And as far as how that would affect uh, costs, yeah, we should evaluate that. Uh, under, under Medicare, you know, we... We, we, we cannot uh, do that, although we did have a, a Medicare demonstration project uh, a few years back, and that, that's a whole other subject, and we actually uh, did a reanalysis of that demonstration project uh, at, at Dartmouth, and that's how uh, I got, uh, began to work with, with Dr. Weeks and, and Dr. Gertz. It was that uh, reanalysis. Uh, so, but that's a whole other subject. I don't know if we want to get into that one. <laughs> Well, I, w- I wanted to ask one other question about this paper before we go to the next, and that is specifically about the multiple comorbidities, because I'm not aware of too many other papers that have actually looked at this, and I think it's just an amazing uh, topic uh, to think about, uh, you know, what happens when we see, you know, these are real people and they have real problems, uh, not just spine issues, but they have other things going on, too. And I wanted to get your idea of how, in terms of expenses, maybe in terms of effectiveness, I don't know, whatever you feel comfortable talking about, what, what did you see with these multiple comorbidities? Yeah, so, right. So these were older patients and they were sicker patients and they had a a range of, of, I think the, you know, the, if I remember correctly, 
the, the patients, many of the patients had, had psychiatric comorbidities as well as chronic diseases, you know, kind of the usual suspects, the heart disease and diabetes, et cetera. Uh, so these were, these were sick patients. Uh, and uh, what, what we found was that for those who use spinal manipulation for their low back pain, the vast majority of which is um, provided by chiropractors under Medicare, by the way, uh, what we found was that overall costs were reduced. So total Medicare costs for all services were reduced uh, for those patients who used uh, chiropractic or spinal manipulation for their, for their uh, low back pain. So um, one might hypothesize then that there was some effect upon these other comorbidities. Uh, but we didn't uh, get into that uh, level of detail. So that, that would require further analysis to, to know exactly uh, you know, where the costs were reduced. Although we did find that we did look specifically at uh, the psychiatric uh, problems and, and there, and that was not a source of the cost reductions. Uh, there, was no, there were no lower costs for uh, uh, psychiatric conditions. But as far as the other comorbidities, uh, we don't know. But we do know that overall costs are reduced, so that you know would lead one to possibly hypothesize that the spinal manipulation or the chiropractic care uh, had some effect on the comorbidities as well as on the low back pain. Yeah, wow. I mean, it just opens up uh, another whole line of research. Uh, so <laughs> another lifetime of of research devoted to that topic of comorbidities. So, wow. Yeah. My mind is uh, my mind is blown with all of this research, and um, the next uh, couple of papers again uh, talk about new lines of research. I think this is another uh, pathway, and this is uh, you. You had two papers. Uh, one uh, was talking about uh, association between utilization of chiropractic services for treatment of low back pain and the use of prescription opioids. And uh, the other paper that I wanted to talk about in this segment was association between utilization of chiropractic services for treatment of low back pain and the risk of adverse drug events. So, wow, uh, you know, these these two studies are huge. Chiropractors have been talking about these studies and, you know, I'm on Facebook and I see it all over Facebook and, you know, it's just brought up a lot of attention to the topic. So, I don't know where should we start in these two, Doc. Well, yeah, certainly, you know, the ongoing opioid crisis uh, is something that everyone's concerned about, and uh, was kind of the, you know, kind of sparked an interest in doing, you know, the, these studies. Um, but well, I guess a little bit of background is in order um, here. I just, I just want to note the uh, very broad uh, support for the notion of, of using non-pharmacological therapies for low back pain, right? We, met, we mentioned the clinical guidelines uh, that, that uh, most, most of you are, are, are aware of, I think, for um, clinical guidelines for low back pain being primarily first-line non-pharmacologic therapies. There have been other, you know, kind of 
quasi-governmental bodies, expert panels, um, you know, uh, departments of, of the uh, of the government that have all you know come out with recommendations over the years for uh, non-pharmacologic therapies for for pain. The Centers for Disease Control, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in general, the Institute of Medicine, uh, the, the Joint Commission, the list go, goes on and on, uh, where these um, you know, respected advisory bodies are, are, are saying, use non-pharmacological therapies for pain, and specifically for low back pain. Uh, and, uh, but what, what you don't see, although you have these, these recommendations, uh, what you don't see is a whole lot in the literature about non, non-pharmacological therapies as a potential solution to the opioids crisis. If you read the, the scientific literature about addressing the opioids crisis, what you'll read about is using different drugs, using less of the same drugs, um, you know, different prescribing practices, different pres- uh, practices at the pharmacy, controls over what what physicians do, what patients do. Uh, but you don't see kind of the thinking outside of the box that I think, you know, may just come naturally and, you know, occur, you know, sort of obviously to, to many chiropractors, which is that, well, what if we go upstream and don't use drugs to treat pain? So, and you don't, it's just not part of the conversation. So, and even though, you know, we as chiropractors maybe sort of be able to connect the dots, that's not really the way research happens. It happens in baby steps. So if you want that, you know, kind of perspective to be considered, it needs to be part of the scientific evidence base. So this was a a baby step in that direction. Uh, And I should point out uh, that there is no, we did not establish any causal connection between use of chiropractic care and reduced use of opioids, nor did we establish such a connection between use of chiropractic care and reduced uh, incidence of adverse drug events. But we did establish an association or associations uh, between those things. Uh, We found that uh, when we studied uh, claims data for the state of New Hampshire, We found that the adjusted likelihood of filling a prescription for an opioid analgesic was 55% lower among recipients of chiropractic care compared with non-recipients. We also found uh, average charges per person for opioid prescriptions were also significantly lower among recipients of chiropractic care. And then in a very similar study, we looked at the risk of adverse drug events. And we found that the risk of adverse drug events was significantly lower among recipients of chiropractic services, also as compared with non-recipients. Although uh, there were some limitations to the drug event study because the the the, um, the data was kind of non-specific with regard to the drug categories, so we weren't really uh, able to under uncover a specific relationship between uh, chiropractic care and reduced use of of opioid-related adverse events. Um, That was more, I think, a deficiency of the the particular data uh, we were were accessing, uh, that the the information 
the specific information we needed wasn't there in the data. Gotcha. Now, I know these uh, data sets came from New Hampshire. And uh, do you have uh, plans to expand these to, to different states? We, we do. Uh, and I, I'd like to point out that this research uh, was supported by the Council on Chiropractic Guidelines and Practice Parameters very generously, that first round of research. And now we have a second round uh, of funding uh, expanding on this uh, uh, theme, and we're, we're, we're repeating the study in, in New Hampshire as well as in Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, this time with a little bit more uh, rigorous methods uh, and, uh, and, you know, 10 times as much as large a population base. Uh, so we're going to be looking at these same questions. Uh, prime, you know, with again the focus on the on the opioids uh, association with opioid use, and we're also conducting the study uh, nationally under Medicare, and that that study was uh, funded by a uh, a small uh, foundation out here in Cal Southern California. All right, I can't wait to to be able to read uh, those reports when they come out. Uh, it would be great to get some prospective observational studies to track clinical outcomes regarding the use of opioids and adverse drug events. How do you think uh, clinicians, chiropractors can get involved in these kinds of studies or, or support this form of research? Yeah, I think that'd be, that's, that would be terrific. Um, and uh, I guess my suggestion, and I have to confess, I, I, I have no connection with this organization. I just know of it. Uh, but I, I think uh, that Spine IQ uh, is, is a relatively new project that's getting underway that uh, allows or invites uh, field doctors to actually uh, contribute their data to a nationally based registry. Uh, which uh, will uh, allow some, you know, pretty broad-based uh, research uh, on, on these areas. And, and uh, so, even though the the, uh, the field doctors may not be actually doing the research, they're they're contributing it by contributing to to contributing their data, uh, which is is something that's uh, very much needed. So, spineiq.org. Uh, Check it out and, and see if that's something that uh, you might want to participate in. Fantastic. Uh, how can chiropractors who are in a position to influence policy best utilize this type of data? Well, I think um, simply sharing uh, the results of these studies with colleagues, with Patients with policy makers, uh, in, in you know third-party payers, anyone and everyone who, who's interested, but but don't don't I would urge people not to overstate the conclusions. Uh, sometimes we're our own worst enemies by by you know by virtue of kind of a little bit of over-enthusiasm, you know, which I have to confess to myself as, you know, as having 
been in chiropractic practice for many years. You know, I, I, I recognize the benefits, I recognize the value, and maybe I'm a little bit biased and, and might, you know, kind of, um, might have a tendency to overstate, right, and make statements that are not supported by the evidence. Uh, so the, the, the evidence, it, 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 you know, alone, as stated in, in these papers, it, is compelling. Um, and so I guess I would just sort of issue that cautionary note, which I, I issue to myself on a daily basis when I compose manuscripts and so, and so forth. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Sometimes we have to straight restrain and just control the bias. <laughs> Very good. Um, I, I, this might be a little bit of a different question, but I'll ask it anyways. Um, how might you suggest chiropractors interact with patients concerning prescription drugs like opioids and, and still stay within their scope of practice? Yeah. Again, not being a chiropractic, uh, in chiropractic practice actively anymore, um, I, I kind of have to pass on this question a little bit. Again, I would say, you know, share the results of research with your patients, you know. Um, and as far as, you know, anything else, you know, the, the, everything's varied by state, right? Um, so the scope of practice varies by state. So um, I, I, I'd hesitate to make kind of make any blanket statements about that. Sure, I'm yeah. Addressing a national audience. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so I want to talk about two other papers, and the the next two uh, deal essentially with stroke and traumatic injury. So risk of stroke after chiropractic spinal manipulation and Medicare. Uh, part B beneficiaries age 66 to 99 with neck pain and risk of traumatic injury associated with chiropractic manipulation in Medicare Part B beneficiaries age 66 to 99. So could you guide uh, our listeners through these couple of papers and maybe what was the motivation to, uh, behind this as well and some of the key points that you found? I think safety... You know, we have the old the old dictum above all, do no harm, and it and that's really been turned on its head. Its head, I think, you know, by modern medicine in a way, because you know safety is such a huge issue in conventional medicine. Um, the m conventional medical care is the fourth leading cause of death, or is it third now? I, I don't recall. There was a recent study out of Johns Hopkins two or three years ago that showed that you know, it, despite years of quality improvement and quality measurement and, and safety studies, et cetera, uh, that um, the, the, um, the problem has, hasn't gotten any better. It's, it's worse. And, and of course, um, we, we hear these, these issues come up as chiropractors, um, the issue, particularly the issue of the, you know, the association between cervical spine manipulation and stroke. Uh, and it's, you know, often... We often hear these concerns about about safety, so this is not something that that we should ignore because it's 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 the right thing to do to be very concerned about patient safety, uh, and also with this issue just kind of has kept coming up. And I got particularly interested in um, in uh, 
the safety of chiropractic care when I when I was at uh, working at the the Dartmouth Medical Center and I had access because uh, I, I was the trauma registrar and had access to all the uh, records of trauma patients came in. There was a case that came through where uh, a patient uh, had been uh, adjusted by a chiropractor and developed a, a spinal epidural hematoma, uh, and we wrote that case up as a case report. Uh, in collaboration with neurosurgery. And um, I, I think that for me kind of sparked, uh, uh, you know, kind of an acute interest in, in the safety uh, of chiropractic care. So that was kind of the origin of, of these studies. Again, these were studies of Medicare claims data. And um, the, the study uh, of uh, the association between spinal manipulation and, and stroke uh, I think the, the kind of unique contribution we made to this literature, which is already quite extensive on this subject, was that we studied uh, older uh, Medicare beneficiaries. And, and, and we found that the risk of vertebral basilar stroke, which of course is the only kind of stroke that can be, um, we can sort of um, articulate any kind of reasonable mechanism between spinal manipulation and stroke, you know, we can only do that for vertebral basilar stroke. Uh, we found that the risk was extremely low and that the small differences in risk between patients who saw a chiropractor or those who saw a primary care physician for their neck pain were probably not clinically significant. Because first of all, the, the absolute risk was really low and then the, the, the differences between those tiny numbers were also very small. So, um, that, that was the outcome of that study. Uh, the outcome of the uh, study about um, risk of, neuro, of um, physical injury following spinal manipulation was a little bit more clear-cut, and we found that within seven days, uh, the risk of injury to head, neck, or trunk uh, within seven days was 76% lower among those who uh, visited a chiropractic office versus those who saw a primary care physician for a neuromusculoskeletal problem. Hmm. Wow. That just blows my mind. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, these what, were, you know, most previous studies uh, of safety in chiropractic were mostly kind of systematic reviews uh, derived from, from case reports. Um, uh, and, 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 but there were, of course, with stroke, there were, there were a case control studies, very well-conducted case control studies. But a, a, a lot of the literature is, is, was really not, um, well, you just can't do a clinical trial on this because the risk is so low. You would have to do a trial for, you know, 10 years and it cost you $20 million. So that, that's not an option. But this was, you know, I think the, one of the contributions we made here was, was that we had very large databases and, and still found, you know, again, really low risk. The, the, the risk is that what we found was just, it's not an issue. Gotcha. Well, I just read a few days ago uh, on uh, the website there at uh, Southern California University of Health Sciences that you were recently awarded two NIH grants. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. We're pretty excited about it. Yeah, I guess. That's amazing. So the, the studies, as I read them, one was uh, comparing spinal manipulation and drug treatment 
of chronic low back pain and Medicare recipients. And the other was analysis of association between cervical spine manipulation and cervical artery tears. Uh, so if you could, if you could give us any uh, sneak peek, uh, so to speak, on these projects, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah, sure. So the first project uh, is actually uh, an award uh, to uh, uh, SCU uh, to study this association. Again, uh, most studies, again, are, are actually Medicare claims analysis studies. Um, so retrospective observational studies. The, the first study, I think, but the, the the, the unique thing about this, uh, we're looking about, we're, we're looking at, um, we're comparing chiropractic care with prescription drug therapy. But what's unique about this actually is that we're looking at long-term care of chronic low back pain. There are lots of studies of chronic low back pain, right? But in, a, in many clinical trials and various kinds of observational studies, uh, the clinical trials, which are considered, you know, the more of the gold standard for evidence, rarely go beyond a few weeks or a few months. And there have been very few clinical trials that go as long as a year. But if you think about it, uh, people with chronic low back pain, pain, it, pain tends to be not only chronic but recurrent. And, may, you know, patients may be seeking treatment for a whole lot longer than just three months, sometimes for years. Uh, but the evidence that we have for long-term treatment is pretty scanty. Uh, and, and certainly for opioids and, and NSAIDs, uh, there are serious safety concerns. And the eff effectiveness over the long term is very, un very uncertain. Uh, that's also true, in fact, of spinal manipulation, which certainly under Medicare, if you think about maintenance care and the issues that, that Medicare has with maintenance care, kind of highlights the, you know, a certain amount of uncertainty uh, about the value, at least you know, among the uh, Medicare administrators, but certainly among many others as well, about the value of the long-term uh, uh, chiropractic care. Uh, for, for chronic low back pain over a period of year, a year or more, sometimes many years. So what, what we're looking at it here then, uh, it, it, this comparison, we, 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 because we have uh, Medicare claims data, we can examine uh, over a period of multiple years, and we, we hope to shed some light uh, on this issue of long-term care and what's effective and what's, what's safe. Uh, the other study uh, was actually uh, primarily awarded to Dartmouth, and I'm a, a co-investigator on that study. And yes, it is yet another study of uh, the risk of um, uh, uh, cervical artery dissection, vertebral artery dissection, as well as carotid, uh, following uh, a spinal manipulation. And I guess what's you know, distinctive about this study is the the size of the data set that we'll be using, where we'll be studying over a nine-year period, uh, not only older Medicare beneficiaries who, uh, as you may recall from the discussion a few moments ago, the, the risk tends to be low among older Medicare beneficiaries for vertebral basilar stroke. Age seems to be protective for some reason, actually, for that particular issue. It's more of a problem for younger 
uh, people. Uh, but uh, we're studying not only older Medicare beneficiaries, but younger Medicare beneficiaries, which, as I'm sure you know, may realize are mostly people who are disabled. The, the, uh, disability is a reason for Medicare coverage. And so we're going to be studying not only the older beneficiaries, but also the younger uh, disabled Medicare beneficiaries, and many, of course, are disabled for spinal problems. So, and many receive chiropractic care. So, a uh, much larger data set, more inclusive population, and really, really rigorous methods for observational research using not only uh, uh, the kind of pseudo-randomization of propensity scores, but also an instrumental variable analysis and um, kind of just looking at this data every which way and trying to tease out associations that may have not been apparent uh, through other studies. Wow, I have a smile on my face. This is going <laughs> <laughs> to be neat. <laughs> oh, well, I want to keep talking about this stuff, uh, but uh, I, I do want to ask one, one last question, and that is... Uh, you know, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors or, or students who want to go down this pathway? Uh, sure, I guess. Um, well, first of all, I just want to, you know, in, encourage anyone who, who thinks they they may be inclined to pursue uh, a career in, in chiropractic research to really in, encourage that. That's, it's, um, it's, I found it very, very fulfilling and very exciting, although kind of in the midst of research, it seems, you know, might seem kind of a little humdrum, a little boring at, at, at times, but when you get those answers, it's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, so... Yeah, I've, I've found it uh, very fulfilling. And I guess what I would say is, is that, you know, research, um, it, it's not a, a one-man show or a one-woman show any, any, by any means uh, anymore. It tends to be collaborative. So and, um, if you want to do research, you kind of need, need to start building um, relationships and, and collaborative um, relationships with people and institutions. It's really going to help. Um, CARS research is not cheap. You need funding. So, you know, as researchers, we're always thinking about where our funding is going to come from. How are we going to do that? And it, and it can be pretty challenging. Um, but uh, there, are, there are lots of opportunities. There's actually a lot of money out there, <laughs> if you can find it. Uh, and uh, a lot of interest in uh, integrative healthcare broadly and in chiropractic uh, specifically because we do offer so much value and such such a, a wonderful alternative. I think in many many cases um, to um, conventional care, and I think a lot of you know a, a lot of conventional. Physicians are, are recognizing that as well. So it's really, things are really kind of going our way in a lot of ways, although, you know, kind of in practice in the trenches, maybe it doesn't seem like that day to day, and I know it can be very challenging. But, you know, not only in practice, but for researchers as well. 
as well. But so I guess, you know, develop relationships really helps to be associated with a school, an institution, a university or college of, of, of some kind, preferably a chiropractic college, uh, where you will have colleagues with all kinds of knowledge and experience that will come in real handy uh, when it's time to, you know, engage in your research project, because uh, no, no one person can do this alone. You, you need, you need uh, folks to, uh, you know, bounce ideas off of and, and, and uh, people that they can put their heads together with you and, you know, kind of critique your, your ideas and, and your, um, your proposals and your manuscripts and so on. Um, so, yes, align yourself with a chiropractic college. It, it, um, see if you can make some sort of contribution as, as an adjunct uh, faculty member, for starters. Um, it doesn't ha- you don't necessarily have to live near uh, such an institution. You know, with all these electronic uh, alternatives now available to us for communication, the physical distance is not as important as it used to be. So don't let that be a barrier to, you know, kind of exploring these relationships. And then the, the I guess, the, you know, the other thing is, is research kind of funding, particularly federal funding from the NIH or what have you, can be really challenging for uh, the, uh, chiropractic schools, which are smaller institutions, tuition-driven, you know, not wealthy uh, either in... Um, you know, actual cash or, or in, in resources, particularly the kinds of resources that are required for research. So also making, you know, forging collaborative relationships with conventional medicine, with, with, with medical schools. And when I say that, I really mean specifically with people, with, with physicians and uh, healthcare practitioners uh, and, and researchers, PhD researchers at other, at other schools. Uh, that that can be you, you can really put together a very fruitful relationship uh, between a chiropractic school and, and a medical school that can benefit both institutions uh, tremendously. Uh, and, and and then finally, kind of within that context, find a mentor, find someone who's been successful in the research field and attach yourself to yourself to that person and, and learn from them. That can be probably the most important thing that you can do is find someone who's, who's willing to uh, enable to, to guide you along the way because uh, it's, it's just a whole new field and I got into it without having the slightest idea what I was getting into but fortunately I had a mentor who 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 knew uh, what I would need to learn and and was familiar with the process of, of becoming a researcher so um, that I guess that those are the main things it's all about relationships really when you come down to it and if, and if you have good ideas um, I, I just urge you to, to follow up on them and, and see if you can turn them into uh, fundable and executable research projects. Mm, very, very good advice. I, 
I love it. And I thank you so much for taking the time today and coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. I know a lot of people are going to love listening to this. And so thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, share a little bit. You know, everybody kind of likes to talk about their own work, right? So Absolutely. <laughs> really nice. So uh, thank, thank you so and I, much. Uh, my, my privilege. I, Oh, great. Well, I hope we can talk in the future about some of these studies that uh, you mentioned today. I look forward to <laughs> catching up and learning about those studies in the future. Sounds good. I'll All look right. forward to it too. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science, where we got to hear from Dr. James Whedon. I hope you learned as much as I did during this interview. We'll have many great interviews coming up, so stay tuned.